The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these my signs in the midst of them, and that you may tell in the ears of your son and of your son's son what things I have wrought upon Egypt, and my signs that I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. And Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring locusts into your border, and they shall cover the eye of the earth, so that no one shall, so that one shall not be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the rest of that which has escaped, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree that grows for for you out of the field, and your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. But who are those who shall go? And Moses said, With our young and with our old we will go. With our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. And he said to them, May Yahweh be so with you when I let you go and your little ones. See, for evil is before your face. Not so. Go, pray, you who are men, and serve Yahweh, for that is what you desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail has left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all the night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the borders of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, and after them shall be none such. For they covered the eye of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing on the trees and in the herbs of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. And now forgive, pray, my sin only this once, and entreat Yahweh your God that he may take away from me only this death. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh. And Yahweh turned an exceeding strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the border of Egypt. And Yahweh emboldened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And be pleased to use your word now as you have promised 
to make us wise unto salvation and to mature us in Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen. John Acuff, in his book, Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking, addresses the subject of how your thoughts affect your actions. And then he refers to thoughts as a soundtrack. And basically, the thoughts running through your head on a daily basis affect your actions, decisions, and so forth. And really, well, that makes a lot of common sense. But as the title indicates, what happens if you overthink things? to the point where it paralyzes you from doing, from doing nothing or from doing anything. Well, that can be detrimental. So Acuff discusses how to go about changing the soundtrack that runs through your head, which involves asking three questions, and the first of which is this. Is it true? He points out that we have plenty of things cluttering up our minds that simply aren't true that we might take for granted as being true, or just haven't thought about it enough to realize that it isn't true. In light of a recent conversation in which I participated, the thought crossed my mind of how much the church today needs to check its soundtrack and whether or not what it thinks is true, particularly in relation to the lordship of Christ, that he rules this world, that he's the king, and the fruit that, that, such, that such right thinking might produce. Of course, for the church to have a healthy soundtrack, for it to have true thoughts, particularly about Jesus, who is the truth, then it must be steeped in the Scriptures, in the Word of God, all of it, in order to think rightly and truly about the Christ to whom the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms all attest. Our text this morning before us in the first 20 verses of Exodus 10 serves that very purpose as we come to the eighth plague against Egypt. Recall that last week we uh, began the third and final cycle of plagues with the seventh plague of the hailstorm that brought incredible devastation to Egypt. Men and livestock left in the field were killed, green plants decimated, particularly the flax and barley crops, and trees were shattered. And we noted that in this final cycle of plagues, the intensity level has been significantly raised. And that these final plagues are portrayed as coming even more directly from Yahweh, uh, even from heaven. Of course, the respective plagues matching the respective layers of the triple-decker universe is still portrayed. The water, land, and heavens are atmosphere. But the step up in intensity reflects an unmistakable origin in Yahweh, which is reflected again in the plague of locusts. Here in the eighth plague, the specific word for land is used 12 times. We often associate 12 with the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples. And it's another number that reflects completion and perhaps conveys here that the, you know, the complete destruction of the land of Egypt in the aftermath of this plague. Well, in keeping with how a second cycle or a second plague in a given cycle is introduced, as we also noted with plagues two and five, what do we read in verse 1? Yahweh's command to Moses, go to Pharaoh. And said Yahweh to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have caused to be heavy his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may set my signs there in their midst, and so that you may recount in the, years, in the ears of your son and your son's son how I made a fool of the Egyptians and the signs which I have set among them, and that you may know that I am Yahweh. 
Now, initially, things sound somewhat familiar, but then we hear some new things as well, don't we? Yahweh causing Pharaoh's heart to be heavy, hardening it, reminds us of chapter 9 and verse 12. But now Pharaoh's servants, his royal officials, are added to the list, which we saw glimpses of in the previous plague when some of them didn't bring in their men and livestock from the fields. And also note that part of the purpose in Yahweh's actions is in order for him to set these signs, to perform these signs in the midst of the Egyptians. And then he specifically calls them my signs. The last plagues really are his signs to Egypt, and he's going to perform them. But then surely you notice that these signs aren't only for the Egyptians, but also for the future generations of Israel. And that, well, Yahweh is audacious enough to claim that Moses will recount these acts to his sons and his grandsons, and specifically that he, Yahweh, made fools of the Egyptians. The word can also be rendered something along the lines of acted severely, but Yahweh making a mockery of the Egyptians is perfectly in keeping with the language that's used. And Yahweh the Lord doing that to his enemies is part of what the sons of Israel should know about him and understand that this is part of his character. This is who he is. He is a God who mocks his enemies and should be further emboldening and encouraging to them that he is that type of God. You know, with our modern sensibilities, this view of God might make us a bit nervous or we think we have to apologize for God in some form or fashion, especially the God of the Old Testament, which is to flirt with the ancient heresy of Marcionism, or that Jesus wouldn't act that this way, but that's to forget that, well, Jesus is Yahweh, even as he claims on a number of occasions in the Gospels, which gets the Jewish, relig uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders all fired up, bringing charges of blasphemy against him. And when Jesus makes I am statements in the Gospels, which sometimes get obscured in our English translations, he's making this association. In Greek, it reads, ego emi, I am. He's identifying as Yahweh, the covenant keeper, who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And we, we popularly think about the I am statements, particularly those found in John's Gospels. Uh, John's Gospels, such as, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. But there are a number of others, and one that we heard in recent weeks from Matthew 14 is when Jesus is walking on the water toward the disciples who are in the boat and, and they think he's a ghost and cry out. And then what do we read? And immediately he spoke to them, Be of good cheer, I am. Don't be afraid. Or in light of Yahweh mocking the Egyptians, we have the scene of the heavenly throne room from Psalm 2 when the nations rage and conspire against Yahweh and his anointed. How does he respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh holds them in derision. So we can say it's Jesus making a mockery of the Egyptians. And there's an interesting twist to a familiar theme at the end of verse 2 when Yahweh tells Moses that you may know that I am Yahweh. The you is plural, properly rendered y'all. That y'all may know that I am Yahweh. One of the fundamental themes of the plague accounts is in order that Pharaoh may know that Yahweh is God. But now Yahweh declares that these plagues are also for the sake of Moses and Israel knowing Yahweh. And that adds another layer to the text and will become a significant point later on with Israel as, as he identifies himself to them in relation to the Exodus. So the, these plagues aren't just for Pharaoh and Egypt, but also for Moses and Israel. Verses 3 to 5. 
And went Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before my face? Send out my people and they may serve me. For if you refuse to send out my people, behold, I will cause to come in tomorrow a locust swarm in your territory. And it shall cover the eye of the land, and no one will be able to see the land. And it shall eat the remainder of the escaped remnant surviving to you from the hail. And it shall eat every sprouting tree of yours from the field. So Moses and Aaron obey Yahweh's command, and their message sounds pretty similar to previous occasions. But clearly Pharaoh is acting proudly. He's exalting himself and refusing to send out the Hebrew people in order for them to worship Yahweh. And Yahweh says that if he persists, then tomorrow a plague of locusts, a swarm of locusts, will come upon all the territory of Egypt. And what are locusts? Well, they're a type of grasshopper, and they eat plants and vegetation. And whatever the hail didn't destroy, these hoppers will consume. Apparently a locust can eat its weight in vegetation every day. And when there are thousands upon thousands of them, whatever green plants survived the hailstorm or had grown up since will be wiped out. But then notice something different in verse 6 in relation to the previous plague. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and houses of all Egypt as they have not seen, your fathers and your father's fathers, from the day when they came upon the ground unto this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. See, with the plague of hail, what was a means of escape for man and animal? To get into the house. The text is clear on that point and foreshadows the Passover where there's refuge in the house with blood marking the door, as we discussed last week. But that's not the case with this plague, which is reminiscent of the second plague and the invasion of the frogs, which also made its way into the Egyptian homes. You know, there was no escape from the grasshoppers, you know, making noise, flying about in their bedrooms, their bathrooms, living rooms, wherever, everywhere. And what an utterly miserable experience that would be. As usual, there's time for Pharaoh to act, time for him to repent, because Moses announces it will be tomorrow. And the text is clear to tell us that upon delivering the message, Moses, he just turns and goes out from Pharaoh. You know, you can just picture this happening. There's no further discussion. There's no waiting for Pharaoh to respond. Just the proclamation, and then Moses turning on his heel and departing. But then there's a change in the rhythm of the story in verse 7. When Pharaoh's servants get involved, some of whom are, seem to be coming around and see what's going on. And so we read this. And said the servants of Pharaoh to him, How long shall this one be to us for a snare? Send out the men, and they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not know Egypt is destroyed? Some of the servants see what's going on. They're not living in some other reality, and they're tired of Moses coming in and making these pronouncements, and Egypt suffering for it. And they say, Send out the men. Interestingly enough, the word uh, men is the same that was used in chapter 5 and verse 9 to refer to those engaged in the hard labor. So the servants seem to be encouraging Pharaoh to allow for the labor force to go and worship Yahweh. Then what do we read in verse 8, which is another new development, something we haven't read before. And Moses and Aaron were caused to return to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve Yahweh your God, who and also are the ones going. Now, some additional dialogue is going to take place between Moses and Pharaoh on account of the intervention of Pharaoh's servants. And Pharaoh gives these, these short, abrupt commands. Um, ironically, back in 5.18, he said, go and serve, but it was for the Israelite slave to go and, and make bricks. And, and you should get the sense that he's, he's irritated, and, and he asks who would be going to worship, and he's asked, acquiesced to the demand, but now he wants more information. 
verse 9. And Moses said, With our youth and with our old we'll go. With our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, we go for a feast to Yahweh to us. So no one is to be left behind, as three pairs are listed, young and old, sons and daughters, flocks and herds, uh, children and those of retirement age, sons and daughters and flocks and herds, the animals that were needed for the sacrifices for the feast. In verses 10 and 11, Pharaoh replies and his agitation increases. He, he's becoming a bit unhinged, even more exasperated. And, and verse 10 is, is difficult to translate and doesn't seem to make um, sense after a fashion, which may even be part of the literary point to convey Pharaoh's state of mind. And he said to them, let it be thus, Yahweh with you as such as I send out you and your little ones. See for evil before your face. Know thus, go now the strong man and serve Yahweh for that you are desiring. And he drove them out from before the face of Pharaoh. So basically Pharaoh the tyrant is saying that Moses' purposes are evil. Sounds like he might be projecting on Moses a bit of his own paranoia. And you can almost hear him sputtering in rage as he says these things. And, the, and, the, and there's no way he's going to send out the little ones. He commands them to go, but it's the strong men that are to go, the warriors that are to go. This is the word gibberine, which elsewhere refers to David's mighty men, uh, which probably constituted the greater part of Pharaoh's uh, slave labor force. So it seems that men 20 and older uh, who are of fighting age may go, but that's basically it. And it could be that Pharaoh is making an implicit claim that the women and children belong to him since the wives would have been taken by the sons of Israel while they were slaves and the children born to them during that time as well. It could be. And this, this also ties back to an earlier theme. To whom do the Hebrews belong, Yahweh or Pharaoh? Which then overlaps with the ongoing authority and power struggle that's taking place. Well, Pharaoh in his anger runs out Moses and Aaron. He forces them to leave. Of course, only allowing the men to go isn't good enough. That's not repentance or obedience. And so we have the recounting of the plague itself in verses 12 to 15. And Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand upon the land of Egypt, for a locust swarm to come upon the land of Egypt. And he will, it, it will eat every green plant in the land, all which was spared from the hail. And Moses stretched forth his rod from his rod upon the land of Egypt. And Yahweh guided an east wind upon the land all that day and all the night. Morning came and the east wind brought the locust swarm. A few quick points. Note again the association between the, the hand of Moses and, and his rod, the rod of God, indicating power and authority, and that there's an increase in mentioning the, of the land. Also, it's, it's, a, it's an east wind, which means it came from the east, which we'll consider a bit more later. But historically, Egypt would suffer locust plagues coming up from the south. So this one doesn't come from the usual place. But, of course, neither is it an ordinary plague. And ascended the locust swarm upon all the land of Egypt, and it settled on the whole territory of Egypt very heavy. Before its face had not been a locust swarm like it, and after it shall not be thus. And it covered the eye of the land of all the land, and darkened was the land, and it ate all the green plants of the land, and all the fruit of the tree which remained from the hail, and not remained any green in tree and green plants in the fields in all the land of Egypt. So there was never uh, a locust plague like this one before, 
uh, in Egypt's history since they were founded as a nation after the Tower of Babel, nor one after. And this language of ascended, of them going up, it was, it's that language of invasion again. An invasion is being described. The locusts were heavy on the land. Same word used often of in relation to Pharaoh's heart. And it covered the eye of the land. The same expression was used back in verse 5. In Yahweh's warning, and it, it means to cover the surface, but it, it makes for some interesting imagery. You know, the earth itself, the land is being described like an eye, but then that eye cannot be seen on account of the locust swarm. Interestingly enough, as a side note, this expression is used two times in Numbers 22 to refer to Israel as a people who came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the eye of the earth, the eye of the land. And what further effect of the locust swarm is mentioned? That it darkened the land, that it made it black. Now, it's quite possible the locusts were black in color, but this darkening should remind us of what? The black clouds of the hailstorm in the previous plague, the plague of gnats to a degree, but also the plague of darkness that's coming next. The text is portraying all of these overlapping images because there's a cumulative effect of the plagues that's taking place, especially in this third cycle of plagues, plagues 7, 8, and 9. And the text is clear to say that nothing green is left. The locusts eat it all. And what specifically? The green plants of the land and the fruit trees. Put another way, grain and fruit are destroyed. Bread and wine are destroyed. And so Egypt continues its plummet into chaos and decreation. Verses 16 and 17. And hastened Pharaoh to call to Moses and to Aaron, and he said, I sinned against your God and against you. And now lift up, pray, my sin only this time, and entreat to Yahweh your God to turn aside from me only this death. Pharaoh is urgent in seeking an audience with Moses and Aaron. And as with the seventh plague, there appears to be some genuine confession that's taking place on Pharaoh's part. He recognizes his sin against Yahweh, and he also says that he sinned against, against Moses. And as we noted last week, we should take Pharaoh's statements as being sincerely made, since he seems to soften under the affliction. As he's done on previous occasions, Pharaoh asked Moses to entreat to Yahweh to intercede. And he's very specific that it be for this particular circumstance and that God, would turn, that God would turn aside this death. You know, Pharaoh sees that the locusts have brought death to the land and that they represent death, which also foreshadows the tenth plague. Again, there's an intensification taking place with the plagues. And although we don't read about people or animals dying here, the complete destruction of Egypt's agricultural system means not only the destruction of their economy and livelihood, but that they've been plummeted into a famine from which there's no quick recovery. When there's no food, what comes about as a result? Death. You know, if you don't eat, you die. Pharaoh is seeing this and appears to be coming to his senses somewhat. And, and then notice that there's no verbal reply on Moses' part recorded in the text. There's no response except the actions that he took. Verses 18 to 20. And he went from Pharaoh and entreated to Yahweh. And Yahweh turned a west wind, very strong, and he lifted the locust swarm and blasted them into the Red Sea. Not remained one locust in all the territory of Egypt. And Yahweh strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not send out the sons of Israel. So Moses goes out, he prays, he intercedes, and Yahweh acts yet again according to Moses' prayer. And what kind of wind did Yahweh send this time? Well, a west wind. It came from the west and moved east and blew all the 
the locusts into the Red Sea, making them fish food. And the text is clear to state not a single locust remained in all the territory of Egypt, reminiscent of the fourth plague when the text uh, tells us there that not one remained of the swarm of flies. So once again, not only does the enacting of the plague testify to Yahweh's identity and power, but also the immediate and miraculous removal of it. And does Pharaoh finally relent and send out the people? No, similar to what we read in 9.12, after the plague of the boils, Yahweh strengthened Pharaoh's heart. This is the second instance of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart being attributed to Yahweh. Otherwise, the text so far has conveyed Pharaoh is causing the hardening of his heart, which presents us with the biblical truth, this biblical tension of did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Did Yahweh harden his heart? Yes. They're, they're both true. And we noted this in weeks past and won't spend further time on it now. But let's spend, spend a moment or two considering this east and west wind that are specifically mentioned. Why east and west? Well, in biblical geography, what is east of Egypt? Well, the Red Sea, quite obviously. But what else? Well, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where the sons of Israel are originally from, we might say. It's the inheritance promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But also, arguably, that's where God's throne is located. Now, maybe you think, well, wait a second. Israel hasn't conquered the land yet, so how can God's throne be there? There's no ark, there's no tabernacle, there's no temple. How can God's earthly throne, so to speak, already be in the promised land? Well, the city of Salem, later Jerusalem, is there. And what significant yet mysterious biblical character resided there? Melchizedek. Who was he? Well, the priest king of God Most High who brought out bread and wine to Abram and his 318 green berets after they defeated Kedalaramir and his alliance of kings and rescued Lot and company. And Abram wouldn't have anything to do with the king of Sodom when he came out to meet him, but he paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Still more, why do you think David wanted Jerusalem for the capital city? Because it was the throne city of Melchizedek. So part of the symbolism with the east wind is that it comes from God's throne. It comes from God. He sends the invading army of locusts to destroy Egypt. Of course, the west wind is needed to get rid of the locusts. But what might that also picture? Well, I have two guesses. Uh, maybe it's, and maybe it's um, not an either-or circumstance. One, that it pictures the exodus of the sons of Israel, who have become numerous, even a mighty army. And so Yahweh takes them west through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Two, that it pictures the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. It could be. Um, maybe it's both, maybe it's neither, but interesting to think about. Nevertheless, Israel will be moving west, and the east wind makes another appearance in chapter 14 and verse 21 at the Red Sea crossing. Yahweh comes to meet his people and deliver them to rescue them and defeat the enemy. Well, what are some further implications which can be drawn from our text this morning? In the continual hardening of Pharaoh's heart and even in the seeming softening and then re-hardening that takes place, divine judgment is at work and it's demonstrated when God gives people over to their evil. And what does that lead to? An increase in suffering. And as it compounds, hope for true repentance fades. We have to be honest about this reality. And what does Paul state in Romans 1? 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Pharaoh's deteriorating state evidences this progression. And we see this in our society today, don't we? Still more foolishness and fools, as the Bible defines them, abound. When we go to Proverbs chapter 1, where wisdom cries aloud, and though wisdom is portrayed as a woman there, Jesus is still the fulfillment of wisdom. What do we read? Wisdom calls to the fools and simple ones and promises to pour out her spirit on them and make her words known to them. But when her counsel is ignored, what does wisdom declare? I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. See, Yahweh mocked the Egyptians. Wisdom laughs and mocks at the fool that won't listen. And then what is the result? The fool's being given over to their sin. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill over their own devices. That's Romans 1. That's how God has made the world to operate. And when we see this and hear this, then we ought to pursue wisdom, pursue understanding according to God's word, which is the way of blessing. We're called to rule. And this is how we go about it, in obedience to the Scripture. And that's a fact that never changes, regardless of what's going on in our culture. And let us be encouraged and clearly see our Savior and teach our sons and daughters and our grandsons and granddaughters that they might rightly know Jesus and that he laughs and mocks his enemies and the enemies of his bride, the church. And arguably, the premier example of this was on the cross when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. But also in the resurrection where death is mocked. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And Jesus is still overturning the powers of the world through the cross and resurrection. Even as the church follows Christ who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in the present circumstances of our society, we might relate to the disciples on the storm-tossed sea, straining at the oars, seemingly unable to do anything, in and of our own strength, which of course we can't. But on the tumultuous sea, which pictures the nations, who comes striding across the waters? The Christ who is conquering the nations. And what does he still say to his church, to his followers? Be of good cheer. I am. Don't be afraid. And surely that reality is communicated to us at his table. As the same Savior declared, I am the bread of life and I am the true vine. So let us continue to abide in this Jesus that our faith and thinking may be further directed as to what is true and what is wise according to the commands of our King. And let us come to Yahweh's feast, to Christ's feast this day. In celebration and joy, even in laughter for the great salvation that is ours and the victory that's been achieved over his and our enemies. Let us pray.
Almighty God, give us grace to contend always for what is true and right and to be ready, if need be, to suffer for it. Give us not over to fearfulness of soul, but lift us into that love which casts out fear so that we may glorify and enjoy you now and forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.